Thank you very much, Jeffrey. I'm honored to be back here. I see much has uh, gone on and much has developed at the Mershon Center since the last time I was here, and I'm truly thrilled at that. Um, let me explain. I want to thank you for a kind introduction. I um, will try to give this lecture in Queen's English rather than in Geordie dialect, uh, just in case you would have difficulty with that. Uh, let me explain a bit about these, uh, my, my visit here today and tomorrow. Uh, we, we agreed I would try to attempt three lectures on three very different topics. The lecture which I'm giving, the more public lecture this afternoon at 4 o'clock on reforming the UN, is uh, kind of retrospective. I spent about 12 years since the mid-1990s to the publication of my book on the Parliament of Man last year, thinking about writing about drafting an international report about the long-term future of the United Nations. So I'm going to talk about that at four, and I will be trying to suggest the sort of things I learned, the things I had to discover when being asked to get into the study of the United Nations. But that's a retrospective. Today's talk and tomorrow's talk at noon are uh, tentative and they're prospective. I'm thinking of going back to my old uh, bad habits of writing two books in parallel. And one of them might be an operational history of the Second World War, and I'll try to outline some early tentative ideas I have on, on, on why I'm doing it in this particular way. And the second book and the second project and the third lecture will be me talking about uh, understanding the elusive Mr. Kipling. I'm going to be writing about the great British imperialist poet, child's writer, novelist, polemicist Kipling. But that's tomorrow. I, st I wasn't thinking of doing this book, uh, ladies and gentlemen, for uh, until about the end of last year. And then uh, I decided, you know, what the hell the massive albatross of trying to save the United Nations has slipped away from my back. Ban Ki-moon can take over and do it all. Um, I can press ahead, certainly with Kipling, but I, I had another book I'd been thinking about on and off for many years. Actually, on and off since I was the last of Sir Basil Liddell Hart's research assistants when I was at Oxford and worked with Basil between 1966 and 1970 on his final work, A History of the Second World War. Uh, but it was driven more by uh, circumstances at Yale. I and my colleagues, John Gaddis, Cold War historian, and Charles Hill, former diplomat, advisor to Schultz, Kissinger, uh, Boutras Galli, among other things, teach uh, through an entire academic year from January to December a course called Studies in Grand Strategy. And in the uh, spring semester, the one we are in now, we uh, spend every week looking at either case studies of historical grand strategies or we're looking at the classic texts of grand strategy, starting off with Sun Tzu, Klaus, uh, Machiavelli, uh, Caesar's Gallic War, um, Thucydides, of course, Clausewitz, and so on. Uh, 
I, I think the students I'm teaching are, are terrific and they're very talented, but uh, they come from a different generation of myself and Professor Parker. They haven't a clue how to tell the difference between a frigate or a destroyer or a spitfire or a dive bomber. Um, and I have been getting increasingly irritated and showing this to my colleagues in the grand strategy class, which is why they're sending me off on leave in January to get me away <laughs> from criticizing. Um, it's because our focus at Yale, I feel, is too much on the top end of grand strategy. And what I learned when coming here on a number of occasions to participate in the military effectiveness three-volume project that Wick Murray and Alan Millette were conducting with the help of Andy Marshall and the Office of Net Assessment, what I learned from them was that interesting idea that if you look at, at uh, the success in war, success in a campaign, you have to understand what happened at the tactical level, what happened at the operational level, what happened at the strategic or campaign level, and then what happened at the grand strategic level, the policy decision. Uh, so my students are quite familiar with this uh, photograph behind me uh, because it's, it, it adorned the front of the syllabus and prospectus for our grand strategy class. It's Churchill and Roosevelt with the chiefs of staff meeting at Casablanca where they determine upon very significant parts of grand strategy. Uh, the unconditional surrender of Germany, the affirmation that it is a Germany first policy, even though uh, Admiral King sitting there looking very stiff on the left is going to make sure it isn't all that much of a Germany first policy, since the Navy gets the glory in the Pacific, not in the Mediterranean, um, and various other decisions like that. And so my students see that, they see at the Casablanca conference, these decisions were made, and lo and behold, in uh, June 1944, the Allies invade France and go on to defeat Germany. And then in uh, July, August 1945, they defeat Japan. So ergo, one thing leads to another. I've always loved that book by Martin van Krefeld on military logistics and war from, from uh, Wallerstein to Patton, so from the Thirty Years' War to the Ardennes campaign, etc., where it has on the back cover a, uh, a blurb by somebody who I think was one of Patton or Bradley's major generals who was in charge of U.S. Army logistics in Northwest Europe campaigns, 44-45. And uh, this guy writes, this book is compelling reading for all amateur strategists who move armies across the Alps with the stroke of a pen. And I've, uh, I, I like quoting that because it seems to me that my colleagues and my students tend to do that. And so I, I insisted that if the students were going to go to special classes on how to write an essay, how to do a PowerPoint presentation for political leaders and everything else we do, uh, I was going to insist that we had some classes on how we moved armies across mountains without the stroke of a pen but with a lot more effort. And this led me to give a presentation to the Grand Strategy class, and that led me to think, well, you know, there may, may be a book in this. Uh, I'd concentrate on the Second World War, although I can give lectures on military logistics in the Thirty Years' War, all stolen from Jeffrey Parker. Uh, 
and I can't give them on other subjects. So I tentatively called the uh, title of this prospective book, I, if, you, if you damage me too badly in the quarter hour, half hour Q&A session, I may you know, wrap things up, wrap up that map of Europe that will not be used in my lifetime and go on to Kipling. Um, so I began to think of doing something which, uh, if any of you know of uh, the chapter six of my book, The Rise and Fall of the Great Powers, looks as if it's going to be written by somebody who's absolutely different from the author of The Rise and Fall of the Great Powers because chapter six explains how the Second World War was won chiefly by examining the massive technological and economic and productive underpinnings of one side of the equation as compared with those of the other side of the equation, in particular when the U.S. really gets its massive industrialization of war underway from 42 onwards. So Kennedy back then explains the outcome of the Second World War by observing that you know, in 1943, U.S. industry launched 83,000 aircraft, and in 1994, it launched 94,000. 1944, it launched 94,500 aircraft. You just look at the aircraft numbers and you say, ergo, war is won. So I'm deliberately tilting back to on-the-ground stuff for myself because I think it's important. I don't think we, apart from Don Kagan, do enough of military history straight and proper at Yale. I don't think any of the Ivies does. And, uh, it, but it's also because I think we may have lost, and two or three generations of college students may have lost any sense of how the war was won. So I have structured this possible future book around a number of hard problems. And... Um, it goes like this. I'll let you ponder on it, but I'll keep up my, my flow. I said this was, the, the earlier picture was of Churchill and Roosevelt and the chiefs at Casablanca. And they had said, yes, well, they're still arguing about whether they can get into Europe in 1943 as opposed to 44. But yes, Germany first, we'll invade, we'll, we'll knock the... Nazi gangsters out, and then we go and polish up the war in the Pacific. Now, it's kind of interesting that uh, within two months of the uh, meeting at Casablanca, the Allies were almost completely losing the Battle of the Atlantic. Uh, I'm going to talk a bit about that. It's also interesting that as in 1943 unfolded, Allied bomber losses both nighttime and in daytime when the B- 17 and B-24s came into East Anglia and flew to Schweinfurt and Regensburg. The Allied bombing losses were catastrophic and unmaintainable. It's also true that in 1943, the British and Canadians attempted the first trial run on breaching the Atlantic Wall at the commando raid at Dieppe, and they just got pummeled back into the sea. So you see where I'm going. My students think that just because Churchill and Roosevelt and the chiefs said, okay, this is where we go, this is our grand strategic choice, and a few years later it happened, then there's nothing more of the story to tell. So I'm going to try and 
tell it, I, I just ask myself six or seven questions. How actually do you get a convoy safely across the Atlantic in the middle of Dönitz's wolf packs? How do you win command of the air? Not with a stroke of a grease point pen. How do you land on an enemy-held shore, one of the most difficult things in all of the history of warfare? How do you stop a blitzkrieg? How do you fight through a jungle? How do you hop across the Pacific with those great distances? And the seventh one, how to win an intelligence war. I'm sure you could come in with a number of other ones there for the moment. I'm just going to put it right down to these things because my argument is if you can't win the Battle of the Atlantic and you don't get command of the air and you cannot land on an enemy shore and you don't know how to stop a blitzkrieg and you cannot get through a jungle and you cannot go across the Pacific and you've lost the intelligence war, buddy, you've lost the war. So we better know, and my students had better know, how the decision actually goes through a series of grappling with these hard questions until answers come out. So uh, what I'm going to talk to um, today is not all of this. I can't get through that. But with the use of PowerPoint illustrations, I I'm going to try and have a crack at the first three. So the uh, Battle of the Atlantic, the battle for air superiority over Western Europe, and the evolution of successful amphibious warfare techniques. If I get through them, I'll be pretty lucky. Um, and therefore, the, this will at times, I think, you feel as episodic or staccato because I will want to flash on the screen one or two of the technical things which made these victories possible, uh, which, uh, because of an ill-spent youth in wars end upon time, public libraries reading every book on the Second World War I ever could, and because of working for Liddell Hard, I had a sort of familiar with, familiarity with, which I assumed that very clever 19-year-olds at Yale have, and they absolutely do not. This is the beginning of 1943. This is uh, one of the most astonishing statistics of a military-naval turnaround in the whole of the Second World War. Uh, the, these are Allied shipping losses due to chiefly U, uh, German U-boats. Uh, could be also some few remaining Italian U-boats. This is not about the Pacific campaign. Uh, ignore January. Uh, January was the worst on record in the North Atlantic. Neither the U-boats could get out, nor the destroyer escorts, nor the convoys. So there wasn't all that much sunk because there wasn't much going across the North Atlantic. Uh, you send out destroyers and you get a lot of their topware just ripped off. Uh, the U-boats couldn't see where they were off Iceland with 200-foot high waves. So before, in the, all through 1942 and the lead up to Christmas 42, the Allied merchant shipping losses are going up and up and up. January is a breather. Then Dönitz's wolf packs resume again in February and by March they are sinking ships far faster than the Allies can build them, far faster than the Kaiser Yards can build Liberty ships. Uh, you can almost say if this continues we will be out of merchant ships and the UK will be starving by about nine months time. And yet you see the significant drop and the elimination almost of, uh, of shipping losses by U-boats by the end of the year. Uh, was it a miracle? No. It was, uh, it was the coming together of a 
number of scientists, uh, military leaders at the middle level, uh, engineers, uh, designers who together were working on different ways of cracking the U-boat danger problem. And the, the danger was chiefly there in the Atlantic air gap. Uh, let me put, tell you the strategic problem. The strategic challenge is not to sink the goddamn U-boats. It's to stop them sinking your allied shipping. If you just drive them away and they can't sink any allied shipping, you have won the Battle of the Atlantic because that would mean there might be 200 U-boats out there, but they can't get at the convoys. But uh, how do you drive them away when they decide that they will chiefly operate in packs, that is, lines of U-boats controlled by Dernitz headquarters, uh, anticipating Allied convoys coming through, back and forth, because remember, there's a reverse journey, too. Um, and what do U-boats do? And I, could, I, I think I'm bombarding you with too many PowerPoints, so I haven't put this in, but if I showed you a scattergraph map of say, uh, Allied shipping losses location in the first few months of 1943, you would see so, so many of them are in the gap without air surface. Uh, the U-boat commanders really hate air patrols and, uh, because they come in so fast. And so uh, you absolutely did try to operate uh, outside the cover of land-based Ulster and Southwest England air patrols, out of the Iceland air patrols, and then those coming from Labrador and New Brunswick. It was in that gap that you get the happy days in 1943, not unlike the happy days of the U-boat sinkings off the North American coastlines in early 1942 when we had forgotten to put the coastal lights off so all of our merchantmen were sighted in the middle of the night with great illuminations behind them. Well, what are the sort of things I'm talking about? VLR B-24s. Um, they're built, remember, originally like the B-17 for uh, the strategic bombing of Germany and Japan. Uh, but if you could get your hands on a couple of squadrons of these and take out some of the um, capacity for bomb load and put in uh, additional fuel capacity, you could at last have, with these and with the Catalina flying planes, you could at last have the air gap covered by long-range bombers. Uh, there were other ways of covering the air gap too, uh, but uh, I'll only partly go into them. The second thing was a greater attention given to escorts and uh, especially to convoy arrangements. Each side, Dernitz's side and uh, the Max Horton and the Western Approaches Admirals were, work, were looking through statistics. And they had all sorts of you know, boffins from Cambridge who are mathematical geniuses trying to do statistical uh, preferences and st statistical forecasts. And one amazing thing, amazing to them, it may not seem amazing to you, it'll seem a truism, is that it's far better to have a large convoy with seven or eight escorts, 50 ships with seven or eight escorts, than 15, convoy, 15 ships in a convoy with two or three escorts. 
It just, it, you just went through the statistics and you came to that conclusion. Uh, the convoys assembled, as they usually did, of uh, Newfoundland, accompanied by their escorts. And you'll notice that this escort uh, has already got uh, <coughs> the, uh, hurricane fighter ready on the deck. Uh, the, the guys who flew these were you know, utterly, utterly mad. They're probably all Welsh or Irish or something like that. <laughs> I'm not kidding because like, you couldn't land. I mean, there were going to be uh, escort carriers where you got hold of a Liberty ship and you just creamed the top off and you put a flat deck and you could put six hurricane fighters on there, which as I say, just getting up in the air, you don't have to sink the U-boat, so increasingly the story is that you do, but just to get up in the air sends them down. And then you can pick them up on Aztec. On the surface, it's very hard to pick them up, especially in a, a sea going up and down. So improvement in escorts, improvement in aerial coverage, improvement in statistical analysis of how convoys operated. The problem with the convoys up until this time was uh, is best covered in that uh, um, wonderful movie based on a novel by Nicholas Montserrat, The Cruel Sea, starring Baker, I think it is. Is it? I can't remember. Jack Hawkins, I beg your pardon. Hawkins as the captain of a small flower-class corvette, uh, not many escorts, he's... he's his flock are getting sunk. Even when they detect a U-boat and drive it underneath and he goes off with his little corvette named something improbable like cornflower or lollipop or whatever, um, you, what happens is that he can't sit on top of the U-boat for very long because the escort is going further across the Atlantic. So he has to leave it and go back, absolutely frustrated. By 1943, the British had stopped, essentially stopped all work on major warships. And they had recognized, Churchill said the Battle of the Atlantic was the only one which really frightened him. So they had put all of their shipbuilding capacities, not into new Iowa-class battleships, etc., but into more and more destroyers and frigates, including some more powerful destroyers. Um, you can see th the difference between this sucker here and the small little corvette over there. This is in uh, Reykjavik Harbor uh, in, in Iceland. Um, and what's more, under Commander Johnny Johnson of Western Approaches, uh, they, they, were a they had a f a, about a dozen surplus new warships. Surplus because they were going to be grabbed by the Sea and Sea Mediterranean Fleet or anybody else, but they got permission that they could go in the Battle of the Atlantic. And they form hunter-killer groups, which means they're not directly responsible for the looking after the convoy, but they're usually in mid-ocean, perhaps somewhere between one convoy coming back from the UK, another one going across from Halifax, and when the convoy escorts detect U-boats, when they call for help, then the hunter-killer group comes in. And what they do is they drive the U-boat under, and then they just sit on top of the U-boat for one day, two day, three day, and like that movie, Das Boot, until they have to come up to the surface. They've got no more oxygen. And then you kill them. Um, 
but it made a world of a difference to have more aircraft all over the place and the hunter-killer groups readily there. Another great advantage was um, this. Uh, just because of the challenges of trying to uh, defend Britain in the Battle of Britain, they, um, the British rushed ahead of anybody else in the world on the miniaturization of radar. It's not just the big radar stations on the coast of Kent, which I'll show you in a minute, but it's also miniaturize it down to get them inside aircraft, get them on small ships, and uh, then you can pick up, uh, with this radar, you can pick up even just the top of the coning tower of a, a submarine. If, you, if the submarine commander is trying to keep fairly low and not make a large profile, even so, the miniaturization of radar allows you to go out there. And as you can see, that's on a, looks like it's on a light cruiser. Uh, then the, the losses inflicted upon the U-boats in the summer of 1943 were such that Dönitz called them all back to the uh, French and Channel ports as he tried to figure out what to do. Uh, there was a Cold War breaking and counter-breaking conflict going on at this time. There were improved forms of radar detection to put on the U-boat so they could pick up an aircraft coming. Not all of them got it. But um, what happened when the U-boats were sent out again to take their formations in the Atlantic was that uh, they discovered a new enemy lurking in the Bay of Biscay, um, which was this boy. Uh, because you expend so much more fuel and, and oxygen and energy and battery if you're underwater, what the U-boats did was to cross the Bay of Biscay at night. And then when dawn came, you'd, you'd sink and get under. Um, sometime in 1943, Royal Air Force Coastal Command got delivery of its uh, adapted Sunderland flying boats, the short Sunderland built by... Uh, built in uh, Ulster, was uh, the original long-range luxury jumbo jet. It was to take uh, rich, rather rich Britons from Southampton through the Mediterranean, down through the Red Sea, down through East Africa to the Cape, or onwards across the Indian Ocean to uh, Bombay, Calcutta, and on to Singapore and Australia. Um, it was two-story. So it was extraordinarily commodious. Uh, some of you might have the good fortune to travel on you know, Emirates Airline First Class from time to time. I'm sure it's written into the OSU budget for faculty research trips. But even the first class seats on Emirates um, today is nothing like the cabins, which because these were regarded virtually as luxury cruise ships with four aero engines. So if you took uh, a lot of that cabin space out, you could also give the Sunderland uh, an, a massive additional amount of fuel, so it could stay out for up to 30 hours. And you could uh, load it with uh, depth charges, um, and you could send it out. These were really tough aircraft. Uh, it was, they were almost impossible to shoot down unless you had a direct hit on the fuel tank. Uh, one story is of uh, Sunderland coming back at dawn from a nighttime patrol of the Bay of Biscay, set upon by no less than eight Junker 88s. 
and it, it, it fights its way right away across Biscay, a 650-mile fight, and um, it sinks six, it shoots down six of the Junkers, and the other two go home rather battered. The pilot manages to get to the English Channel, lands it off Chesil Beach, and it goes right away up to the stony beach, and they get out, they rescue, and it's taken around to Devonport and repaired. The Germans' nickname for this was Flying Porcupine. It was not only a flying porcupine, it was a very illustrating porcupine. Some uh, eccentric, something like Patrick de Vere de Lay, hence the name of this next thing, the Laylight, figured out if you took two rather large searchlights and you hung them underneath the wings of the Sunderland, uh, if you had the uh, radar detection equipment so you could pick out a, a U-boat two miles away on the surface, you would come in in the dark until about 500 yards out, and then you would hit the lay lights and totally stun the U-boat commander with the power of the lights, blinded, and by that time you're on top of the guy and dropping whatever the heck it is you have upon him. So you notice I'm not saying that there's any single one here which turns things. Not even this. Uh, 1943 was a great year of the show, sort of shadow of the foxes, because it, we now know that the Germans were reading Royal Navy codes and then losing them and then reading them again and losing them, and the British were doing the same. But by April, uh, the British intelligence, uh, Bleck, Blexley and every, everywhere else, had managed to crack the more sophisticated German Enigma uh, five-barrel-rounded machine and to crack the code. So they were reading the codes of the traffic between Dönitz and his captains. And what's more, this story of the plummeting of uh, the U-boat sinking totals is accompanied by some remarkable messages picked up by British naval intelligence, uh, messages of some despair and gloom by the U-boat commanders. Uh, one of them said, we have nothing else to do but to die gallantly which is why this is the final slide on the, this, how you win. You see what I mean? You know, remember that thing at the beginning, the, the merchant ship losses at the beginning of 1943, going downwards, and the U-boat losses going right upwards. So by 43, going into 44, you had at last won the Battle of the Atlantic. We were very lucky in uh, Dönitz's countermeasures, which were the ultra-sophisticated, ultra-fast snorkel U-boats, which were hardly detectable at all and could stay under the water for a long time. The first ones did not get out of the German yards until 1945. By that time, we were telling Bomber Harris to keep bombing away at those yards. Uh, so it, that, it was that year of 43 which was a decisive one. Many of you know of a debate which went on between the British and American chiefs of staff and Churchill and uh, Roosevelt with, with Stalin weighing in on the American side, insisting that the second front should be open sometime in the course of 43. And the Americans getting very disappointed at British resistance to it, suspicious of Winston because he wanted to go further and further in Mediterranean operations. But the blunt fact was, ladies and gentlemen, that in 1943, we neither had control of the Atlantic 
nor control of the air. So thinking of putting an invasion army into Normandy or anywhere else was just logistically, practically, physically out of the question. So I move on now to this second stage. I'll try to quicken things up. I think I have fewer slides here. The battle for the domination of uh, Western Europe in the skies. This is, uh, as you can see, it looks like a Dornier going over Jeffrey. I think that might be the West India docks um, in the middle of the Blitz, where the Germans had, having tried to fight a daytime off the coast of Kent and, and Sussex, uh, been switched to nighttime bombing and bombing against civilian targets and the docklands of the east end of Lon London. This was, uh, as Air Marshal Dowding later reported, the single best thing that ever happened to them. It was not good for the cockneys of the east end of London, but as they received the bombs night after night, the attacks and the German attention was taken away from these weird, triffid-looking things which are now scattered all down the east coast of England and along the south coast. Uh, Robert Watson Watt and his team of Manchester had been pushing ahead in the late 30s. At MIT, they'd been doing something rather similar, but the British urgency and need was greater, so the British just put money into this program. Uh, integrated these uh, radar stations to detector centers, detector centers, and send the messages to uh, RAF Fighter Command at Biggin Hill and elsewhere. And they help explain a lot of the Battle of Britain going one way, not the other way. And it's, again, simple logistics, which I, you know, I have to ask my students, well, what do you think? What, how, how many, what's the range of a Messerschmitt? Let me say, no, 20,000 miles, moon, two miles, no, no idea what the range of a Messerschmitt is. Now, the beauty of these were they could pick up German bomber squadrons in the Pas de Calais as they rose into the air and the accompanying uh, Messerschmitt and Juncker fighters. So the British uh, Spitfire, and especially Hurricane, because there's many more Hurricane in the Battle of Britain than Spitfires, the British fighters could just stand on, the, sit around on the tarmac you know, playing cards. That's why you see all of these photographs where it's called scramble, scramble. They're not in the air wasting their gasoline. They're on the ground. It's only when the German uh, waves of fighters and bombers cross the English Channel that the British defense fighters go up. So they have, they have much more time and much greater, if you like, fuel stamina than a Messerschmitt, which has got about 20 minutes left before it has to return. Um, so, had it's argued that had German air intelligence noticed and deduced what these funny little uh, wire cables were earlier and attacked them, then uh, Royal Air Force Bomber Command Headquarters, I mean Fighter Command Headquarters, would have been blind. They would have had to put their fighters and their, their the, the thing which was most urgent, their pilots, by 1940, Beaverbrook's efforts on the production of, of British bomber and especially fighter aircraft was such that in 1940, British industry outperforms Germany in the production of aircraft. But, but pilots, that was tip and go. It's no wonder the Royal Air Force uh, Fighter Command was such a polyglot thing. There were 
North U.S. Uh, Eagle Squadron. There's a Czech squadron. There's all the Poles who lose their Air Force in 39 and come through and are given uh, Spitfires. Uh, there's a New Zealand squadron. There's the Rhodesian squadron. Uh, look, if you can fly and you can point your aircraft at a German plane and you push this tit and shoot it down, we don't care what nationality you come from. Um, so the Battle of Britain is over, and the Germans go to night bombing for the next three or four years, right to the end of the war, of uh, British cities, more usually the port cities like Plymouth, Southampton, or the Midland cities. It's, now it's time for the Royal Air Force to begin to exert its dominance, uh, and it does so by deliberately sending sweeps of fighters over northern France to provoke the Luftwaffe to come up and have a fight. It's like you know, some, somebody's going to be the big boy on the back street, and therefore you go out and challenge and challenge and, until you beat the others down. Um, with this, uh, one perhaps the best maneuverable single-engine fighter, I'm not saying it's the best fighter of the war. Um, you know, Jeffrey, I just... Huh. I don't think that's a Spitfire at all. Sorry about that. Um, I think it's the naval equivalent, the Sea Fire, because they clipped off the wings so that the Sea Fires could go down uh, into the decks of the aircraft carriers. So I'll have to add on to that. Nevertheless, I, I rescue myself and recover my glory uh, by the next one, which is what I meant exactly. The, the, these are coming over Normandy, over Pas de Calais, and they're out there, and they're not escorting anybody. They're out to provoke the Luftwaffe to come up and be shot at. And with ever-increasing numbers of these, joined a little later by uh, Thunderbolt squadrons, then they begin to get control over France. Control over Germany was altogether different. The uh, German anti-aircraft defenses were truly formidable. Uh, the British, the first British 1,000 bomber raids against Cologne and then Hamburg had really frightened Albert Speer. And he felt he had to mobilize so much of the German war effort just to protect the heartland of the Reich and its industries and communications. Best estimate is that uh, German anti-aircraft forces by 1944 totaled about 1.75 million. So they couldn't fight in France, they couldn't fight in Italy, they couldn't fight in the Balkans, they couldn't fight on the Eastern Front. They were at home trying to protect their factories. This is a, a reason that Churchill used all the time when Churchill, when Stalin would beat up on him about not doing enough for the war. But actually strategic bombing was not only reducing German output, but it was pinning nearly two million Germans down at home. But still the losses were going up and up and up. Uh, sophisticated, more sophisticated German radar, uh, night fighters, and uh, just colossal amounts of anti-aircraft flak. Nor were, was the coming, nor was the advent of the American uh, Air Force in, in eastern part of England helping out, at least not in 43. I mentioned earlier that uh, the, the first few squadrons of uh, Flying Fortresses and B-24s just took a terrible pounding. I think we lost 57 four-engine bombers in the Regensburg, uh, Schweinfurt double raid. You can't lose 57 
P-17s in a raid for very long. Even if we were flying them across almost an ending flow across the Atlantic, you somehow had to fix this. And neither the Royal Air Force at night nor uh, the U.S. Army Air Force at day could fix it, which is why the losses mount up so badly, which is why, although this is one of my favorite movies of all time, it's uh, totally false. If you, you remember this, it's the Hard Luck Squadron or the Dead Beat Squadron, which was flying B-17s out of Lake and Heath or somewhere else. And uh, it, it looks as if there's something rotten within uh, the morale, within the command, within the management. And so uh, Gregory Peck is sent to sort them out. And it's a story of how he interacts with, a, at the beginning, rebellious group of pilots who detest him replacing their much more popular commander. And by the end of the time, he gains their respect, and what's more, they begin a successful bombing with fewer and fewer losses. Well, it made a great movie, and as I said, I like it a lot. It's one of my favorite Gregory Peck movies. Uh, but that wasn't why... Uh, the deadbeat squadron became a very, very effective bombing squadron. It was, it, it was this. P-51 uh, in design was looking something like a Messerschmitt or a Spitfire, single-engine monocoque like a Zero. Um, when it was put on trials in 42-43, it, it was hopeless. I mean, there's a, there's a move almost to scrap the program and move back to Thunderbolt or, or Lightnings. It just wasn't working. It wasn't working because the Pratt & Whitney engine was underpowered. And uh, somebody, I have yet to know who it was, said, well, wait a minute, before we stop production of this, let's get one of these new Rolls-Royce Merlins, which the Royal Air Force is putting into the longer-nosed. If I can just go back a bit. You see the length of the nose on those Spitfires? That means they're not early, early versions of the Spitfire, probably Spitfire Mark 11 or Spitfire Mark 12, because you've extended the size and the power of the engine. And the longer nose the Spitfire is, the more you will recognize that it's like a Mark 15 or a Mark 17. So let's take this astonishingly um, power-driven unit, the Rolls-Royce Merlin, and put it inside a Mustang. And the result was revolutionary. Not only was it faster and more maneuverable, but there was a lot of space in the Mustang uh, for additional fu fuel supplies. By that time, they were picking up on the British habit when the Spitfires went across on sweeps into France, they would have two pods full of fuel underneath the wings, and they would drain the fuel from the pods, first of all, so you could drop the pods and then get lighter weight, more maneuverability, and then you had the main tanks. You didn't have the pods at the, at the end of the journey. You used them at the beginning. So did the Mustangs. So we discovered we had an aerial dogfighter uh, which could fly higher than a Falk Wolf and a Messerschmitt, come screaming down on the German Air Force from 35,000 feet. And uh, it could escort B-17s all the way from East Anglia to, say, somewhere in Austria and then over the Alps into northern Italy. So you had it, the first real long-range escort fighter. And within, in the last uh, couple of months of 1943, and especially the beginning of 44. 
the Mustang shot the Luftwaffe out of the sky in daytime across all of Germany and Central Europe. Not only did it relieve the aerial bomb, strategic bombardment of the American bombers, it also took pressure off uh, the British bombers and bomber losses at night. So there's a feedback loop there. Again, you notice I'm not saying there's one solution. There were a number of things which brought together by people thinking they had a problem. How do you get control of the air over Europe? And here was another little dinky thing before I wind up uh, or do at least five minutes elsewhere. Royal Air Force's problem was that it couldn't hit the target at night. It was sitting on the bathroom door. Uh, it, re it was really bad. It, I mean, it's cloudy. 85% of the nights in, of northwest Germany are cloudy. If you, you, could, uh, you needed some way of establishing where you know, the city of Dusseldorf's marshalling yards were because it's no use. You might be hurting German morale, but a lot of uh, counter-evidence said you didn't really much hurt German morale by the Allied bombing, but you weren't hitting the strategic targets until you got a better H2S direction finding in the noses of them, but in particular until you, um, you developed some uh, very, very fast pathfinder squadrons. And what the Mosquitoes did, probably most versatile of the two-engine fighter bombers of the war, because they could go low, they could go high, nobody could catch them. They flew about 40,000 feet when they were doing photographic reconnaissance after the bomber missions. And what the Mosquito, what uh, Royal Air Force did here was to get the best of the navigators in the, all of the Royal Air Force and Allied fleets and put them in the, um, in the Mosquitoes. And their job was to go in advance of the Lancaster squadrons, find out where the marshalling yards at Dusseldorf were, send out radar impulses from then, and then drop a lot of incendiaries on the marshalling yard so the successive waves of Lancasters and Halifaxes could actually see that there's a, 10 miles away there's something burning and that's likely to be the marshalling yards. This aircraft incidentally is built almost entirely out of plywood, laminated plywood, which is why it flies so high and goes so fast. So the final shot, you remember the first shot here was of a Dornier over the east end of London. Here's your final shot. How you win the air war over Germany? Having won the air war as well as the sea war, how on earth do you avoid the repeat of Gallipoli? One of the most famous, flawed, amphibious landing attempts. Uh, how do you avoid that? How do you learn from that? The US Marine Corps in the Pacific studied Gallipoli all through the interwar years to try to figure out how to get it done. It's a physical problem. How do you get your own army on a hostile held beach which might be full of minefields, barbed wire, machine gun, pillboxes, and perhaps some tiger tanks just lurking behind a hedge? How do you do it? Well, you'd start develop and how do you avoid this thing which I mentioned earlier? This was the attempted Canadian and British commando raid at Dieppe in 1943 where they were testing testing to see how strong the Atlantic Wall was, and they found it was very strong. That sent the planners going back, scratching their heads. How, what were they going to do? Clearly, they felt you couldn't take a port. They tried to see if they could land on each side of the harbor entrance at Dieppe, and you, you couldn't take a fortified port. 
So you had to find a way of landing on the beaches. Uh, but how do you do it if you're planning to put two million men? How do you get it right? How do you, how do you get this right? This is a very well-known photograph, and everybody looks and whistles and says, wow, look at all of that. This is brute force. This is Richard Overy's How the Allies Won. This is Paul Kennedy's Rise and Fall of the Great Powers, Chapter 6. Uh, over D-Day beaches and in the channel on D-Day itself, 11,000 Allied aircraft were in, in the air. Uh, 27 German aircraft were in there. So just like numbers, as I said. Well, no, you had to understand how to get on a beach. So you needed specialist equipment, which you borrowed some ideas from the Marines in the Pacific. Landing craft, that's just a basic landing craft. Italy, pro uh, uh, infantry, probably just coming uh, off a larger ship, which might hold 10 or 12 of them. Uh, but there were other landing craft, which were landing craft tank, other ones which carried trucks. Uh, you had to get a beach master who would be in charge at the beach so you did not repeat the chaos of what had happened on the Gallipoli beaches. Uh, but you had to have lots of them, and you had to find all sorts of ingenious ways of getting through those, uh, those uh, minefields under the sand and in the rocks, um, one of which is this one. There's a General Percy Hobart in the British Army who uh, was an eccentric genius. Uh, he's, he was very effective tank commander in North Africa for the first part of the war. Montgomery didn't like him. Montgomery didn't like geniuses. Um, so he went home, but he was given the job of preparing the Allied uh, armored forces for the landing on the beaches. So Percy Hobart and his gang of you know, goons and boffins went around the coast of North Somerset turning tanks into something else. This is a flaying tank. It can go right away through and it, it, it blows up the mine. It detonates the mine, so it creates a, a gap right through for the successive tanks to come through. Uh, Hobart also had one which had a big flamethrower at the front, uh, which you see a bit, I think, in letters from Iwo Jima because it's transferred to the Pacific. as a sort of learning feedback loop between the Pacific and the Atlantic here, which it really is on any of the other things I've talked about. Um, then you go, you use your air power not to not to I defeat the Luftwaffe fighters in the sky, you've done that, not to do the bombing of Germany, you're doing that. You, you then turn to weapons of war, which are deliberately tack air, tactical air power. And along comes another specialist craft, which is this, rocket-firing tycoons. It's, uh, if you like, it's a Royal Air Force's equivalent of the Warthog, of the A-10. It, it's a tank destroyer. Although in this case, you can see it shooting at a German uh, supply train down there. And the, the rockets, of course, much, much more powerful than any 303 machine gun or 0.50 millimeter. And so you, uh, the, the German armor is destroyed in a place called the Falaise Gap. It's been held back because Hitler was asleep during the invasion, if you remember that scene in The Longest Day. And when it's sent forward too late, it's halted at the front of its advance, and they decide to return. As they return and go back towards the Reich, uh, the typhoons come in and hit the first three tanks in the column, 
the last three tanks in the column, and there's hundreds of German tanks just there in the Falaise Gap and kind of get out. So it was a real uh, turkey shoot. You did other things. I'm going to wind this up here. You did uh, deception missions. The British loved this. All those English minor public school boys who like playing pranks on their schoolmasters and their prefects, etc. Now would, you know, capturing a German, a British officer died of a heart attack in um, in Gibraltar. They um, they uh, put papers in declaring that they were going to invade Greece rather than invade Italy. They let the body float out onto the Spanish shore. The Spanish collaborating uh, with German intelligence passed on the papers outlining the plan, and the Germans rush a lot of forces into Greece. The same thing happens in 1944. Another man who wasn't there operation, so that they're convinced, and Hitler's convinced, that they're going to land in the Pas de Calais and not in Normandy. If you can't attack a big fortified harbor, what are you going to do if there's lousy weather? And if any of you cross, cross the English Channel at any time of the year, you know that the odds are good that there will be lousy weather. So you have to create something. The British were working on this about two or three years beforehand. You have to create an artificial port. This is a Mulberry Harbor. Uh, it's steel. It's linked together. It's got flotations underneath uh, it creates a great arc of protection for the merchant ships, especially the smaller ones. And uh, so you don't actually land, you don't go for any of the larger ports like Cherbourg or Brest. You go for them immediately after you've got your armor on the ground. We always think of Patton busting, busting eastwards, you know, but there's a very large American uh, tank operation curving into... Normandy to get the big port so all of the transatlantic flow of supplies can come in. But in the 15 days before a massive uh, channel storm destroyed the Mulberry Harbor, they had got about a million and a quarter men on and vast amounts of munition. Finally, how are you going to supply them? Remember um, that guy's quote about from amateur strategists who move armies hundreds of miles with the stroke of a pen. How much gas do you think a number of armored divisions and all their trucks and supplies take each day, especially if you're, if you're into open countryside like Patton and pushing ahead 50 or 60 miles? Colossal amounts. Could all the, I don't know, you just didn't have the capacity to get oil tankers across. So here was um, final... Uh, illustration of how to get a big army on a hostile hell beach. It's Pluto. And that is not a Walt Disney character. Uh, I wonder who knows what Pluto was in connection with the D-Day landings. Yeah? Exactly. I knew you would know that. My Yale students wouldn't. This is a device, a flexible device. You can see many layerings, but what, as soon as you see Cherbourg and Boulogne, then uh, the British, who are, after all, remember, have laid most of the world's long-distance trans-Pacific, transatlantic cables, telegraph cables, now use some of the same techniques, except, of course, it's a pipeline this size rather than a smaller cable, to lay these uh, 280 miles in parallel lines so that uh, 
because it's not just one, there's three or four or five of these lines under the water, pipeline under the ocean, Pluto. So there's a continued, if you, so long as the oil tankers get into the UK, coming into ports like Liverpool and Glasgow, then the oil can flow onto the beaches and behind the beaches in support of Montgomery and Baden until you seize the big ports. Um, you see what I've been up to, ladies and gentlemen. I've been trying to suggest that uh, there's a story to be told about the grand strategy and the grand strategic decisions of the war. There are many stories to be told about the various operations, whether it's the Guadalcanal campaign or the North African campaign. Um, but there's a, a, a level beneath that or under that without which nothing. And that's where I think I might have a crack with this, this book. One final illustration, then we go to questions. It's about you know, big, decisive leaders sitting and making decisions and how you get the decisions translated into effectiveness on the ground. So I thought you might appreciate There was a significant strategic decision to proceed with the uh, invasion of Iraq and the toppling of the Saddam regime government and the advance of democracy and uh, our friends' cases in the Middle East. Like every other commander, they face the challenge that it may be fine to have decided on the end goal, on the Clausewitzian purpose of the war. The question is, do you have the tools? Do you have the tactical operational expertise? How, how, do, you go, how do you learn on the job? I mean, Hobart learned that you could do lots of things with a tank apart from firing a five-inch shell out of it. Uh, the people who were turned to miniaturized radar, the people who turned to hunter-killer groups were mid-level officers who said, we've got to crack this problem. Uh, so I, I have the deepest respect for those who come along and say, well, the boss has said we're going to do this. But the question is, how do we do it? How do we carry out the grand strategy? How do we win the war? I'll stop here. Thank you very much. And thank you all for your attention. Yes, please. And could you please speak up because you're right at the back. Probably not. Uh, you're right, it's uh, gadget heavy, if you like. Uh, the morale story of the Second World War is so big and complex on either side, as Neil Ferguson has found out in a couple of his recent books, that would be more than just a chapter. It would be something more significant. 
the civilian side, the productive side, the arms industry side, I felt I've written quite a bit about in, in earlier works. Um, but let me just, b before I accept your point that it looks like it's, there's a lot of gee whiz new gadgets in this presentation, it's partly because it's much, it's easier to do a PowerPoint on new gadgets than it is to do a PowerPoint on morale. Um, what I think I was also trying to say was that you know these new gadgets did not come out of nowhere. There were people cracking their brains just as they were trying to crack the Enema uh, Enigma decrypts. If you've ever seen, um, if you've ever seen uh, the the Dumbusters black and white movie, there you see one person, Barnas Wallace, who's trying to figure out how you can blow the big walls holding the Ruhr Dam, and he tries every conceivable way, getting very little help from the Royal Air Force until near the end. So it's also a story of people putting a lot of intellectual effort and planning effort and experimental effort and God knows how many of these went wrong in the, in the uh, Barnes Wallace story of the bouncing bomb. It, it has about six or seven times where they try to bounce it and it just blows up and the ministry men go back. So yes, it's about gadgets because gadgets put in the right trained hands and gadgets designed to get a job done and not to fail um, do help explaining a lot of how the war was won. Other questions? Please? Yes, please, sir. Yeah, uh, chapter four. <laughs> um, my, my hypothesis is going to be that, well, the, the answer in the first three years of the war about how to stop a blitzkrieg was the famous British Foreign Office answer to anything uh, with great difficulty. Um, you actually find that what stops uh, the Blitzkrieg in Russia is just massive distance, massive temperature extremes, and enormous resistance. This was uh, the, the Allies, especially the British, because of the idea of the British way in warfare, were always trying to get the war won cheaply. And you might be able to get it won in, in certain ways more economically than direct battle. But you could only stop the Blitzkrieg by punching it on the nose and in the belly and stomping it on its toes and sending it home and killing it. And when the second Blitzkrieg is stopped, I suppose that El Alamein, uh, which the British regard as their equivalent of Stalingrad, remember, because they occur in roughly the same six-month period, uh, British artillery outnumbers Rommel's artillery by about 10 to 1. Uh, so there is an element of brute force, there is an element of just toting up the number of divisions and the number of shells you expend, 
In the same way, if you can see the way I've done this, uh, Cap 5 is uh, the jungle campaigns, uh, Burma, New Guinea, Guadalcanal. How, how do you begin, how do you train troops to realize that the jungle is neutral? And you can do things in the jungle just as well as a Japanese soldier can. And then how to hop across the Pacific, well, that's really, of course, a, a, a slightly tongue-in-cheek uh, chapter title, but I think you, kn you know what it is. How do you implement, implement War Plan Orange? You come up with this great war plan at the Naval War College in 1928 about how you're going to reconquer across the Pacific and ultimately blockade and take Japan. How exactly do you do it? So I am going to so you the early ones are the early stages of the war, the Battle of the Atlantic or the Battle of the Air, then come in the different theaters. As I said, I'd like to keep the numbers of how-to uh, uh, chapters to a fairly, a, a fairly limited number. Um, we shall see. There's somebody had a hand up. Yeah, please. <laughs> There'd be a, a pretty rush person who would uh, generalize a reply to that question because the innovations are coming in different ways, uh, different speeds. Uh, some of the innovations have been thought on and planned before the war, like the Marine Corps doctrine about the island hopping or Watson Watt at, uh, with his... Uh, physicists and astrophysicists up at Manchester, some of them are responses to the crisis of the war. We failed to get a victory by that means. What other means do we do it? Some, some of them, you know, I think, are just sheer serendipity. What if that guy hadn't said, before we scrap the Mustang, let's stick a Rolls-Royce Merlin in it and see if it works? So I, I don't have a kind of management school case model of how you learn to be successful because I think there's often there is a conjuncture, uh, fate, uh, leadership, which I haven't talked much about. The only reason that Barnes Wallace gets the go-ahead for his bouncing bomb idea after he's been turned down three or four times by the ministry and resigns his job at Vickers, the only reason he gets his bomb as a pal of his, gets him to take a few reels of the experiment, take him along to Bomber Harris, and Bomber Harris says, go ahead. Uh, again, it's not quite chance, because the guy who was friendly with Barnes Wallace was also an advisor to, uh, to Harris, but still there are some things which... Um, I like to leave room for coincidence, uh, leadership, uh, human character, uh, persistence. I mean, I think Hobart was on the point of resigning when Montgomery kicked him out of the Eighth Army. Uh, and then sometimes things just come, uh, there's a coincidence in war. There's luck. That's Napoleon's famous dictum. Yes, I know he's a great general, but is he lucky? Um, We'll see. Yes, please. Yeah, I would like to inquire, like, how different is 
Okay, that's a fair point, and I'm going to begin the book with cross-references to my paragraphs and my sentences in The Rise and Fall of the Great Powers, because, yes, that is a challenge. A uh, question is from a military historian, and I'm sure I can rely upon some reinforcement from Jeffrey Parker here, that wars do not necessarily go to the big battalions. They may well go to those who've thought through the operational tactical uh, levels of war better than the other side. Um, so the question, the, the reason why I think this is different uh, to quite a degree from Ellis's brute force and from Overy's uh, why the Allies won, although I respect them as really wonderful accounts of the Second World War, is that I'd like to just get a little bit deeper than brute force or why the Allies won. And um, you know, just, just ask, wh wh where were the times where one interesting invention, which didn't seem to be going anywhere, got picked up by another human being and said, well, why don't you try it this way? Um, and, you know, you'd have to say that uh, it's all very well for you yourself and Professor Kennedy by 1944 to say, oh, 94,600 aircraft a year, there's the answer. My, uh, my issue is the turning points, and the turning points were not necessarily the overwhelming force on one side and the diminishing force on the other side. As you, I hope I conveyed in the Battle of the Atlantic, it was a zigzag, tit for tat, with different, each side bringing newer technologies to outfox the other side. So I, uh, when you care to uh, look at this in a few years' time, I, I will try to flag those sections which are different from the rise and fall of the great powers, and then I'd be interested to hear what you think of it. There's a question. Yes, please. Sir. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that's right. As soon as you said that, I was thinking of uh, my counterpart at Harvard, Professor Ernie May's book of a few years ago called uh, Strange Victory. Uh, it's about the very sudden collapse of the French army in May 1940, about which the great French historian uh, Bloch had written Strange Defeat and Bloch focused on all of the elements within French society which were corroding and weakening that society. It wasn't so strange. Uh, May says, well, let's look at it from the other side. And uh, rather wonderful in showing the astonishment of the Germans that you know the French were not guarding this road and they weren't guarding that road and they were putting their tanks, of which they had more than the Germans, around each mailbox. Um, so you're right, uh, each of us explaining the outcome of a war and why the one side won has a flip side as to how the losing side lost. Um, 
which is the fun of military history because that's a dialectic which can keep going on and on and on. Uh, I'll tr about six years' time, I'll come back and I'll tell you about this new book project called <laughs> Why the Axis Lost. Can I take a couple more questions? Yes, please. Yeah. I'm not sure. Um, I really am not sure this, the logic chain of figuring out how you get a big army on a hostile beach is, um, to me, fairly clear logic chain. Where I would introduce the local resistance or other element, if that's what you mean, in the picture, uh, I was more inclined to uh, give at least some space in the how to stop a blitzkrieg with the uh, Yugoslav resistance in the mountains. Because, as you know, the uh, Yugoslav and the Greek and Cretan resistance pinned down about 37 German army divisions. Um, but because you couldn't carry out the Blitzkrieg in the central mountains of Macedonia. Uh, but I haven't thought of you know, how to deal with what did the Norwegian, what did the Danish resistance do, apart from smuggling lots of um, hiding Jews through, which uh, would explain the how, to win or how to win enemy held shore. I just need to think more about that because, as I said, this is just a tentative sitting in a hot tub and scribbling possible chapters sort of uh, draft at the moment. It hasn't yet gone to my literary agent or my publisher. Yes, sir. David. You referred to uh, studies that found the bombing has not hurt German morale. Mm -hmm. um, just a, a set of fairly recent publications. Um, one is um, the, the Neil Ferguson's latest fat book, which is on the growing terror of war, but it's also about the growing the ineffectiveness of the terror of war. Um, there are, of course, a lot of anecdotes about people streaming away terrified from Dresden, etc. But on the whole, I think he's fairly convincing that German morale held up uh, pretty well uh, on the home front, as well as in the defense of their military fronts. Uh, some of the uh, stuff of the Ian Kershaw-type work, which is on reports of the Gauleiter on German public opinion, uh, some of the uh, reports of the, I don't say that this would suggest anything about morale, but the reports of uh, now increasing number of incidents discovered of uh, Allied airmen parachuting down and being taken out and battered to pieces and uh, strung up because of the intense loathing and hatred. And then some of the, uh, the, the massive responses in Germany 
last year and the year before to the big debate on we Germans were also victims. And it led to a flurry of uh, sort of memoir accounts, reminiscences. And uh, put that together, one doesn't get the sense of, you know, a, a nation terrified. It was pounded for three and a half years. Um, but I, I, it, it seems to me that uh, the advocates of the terror effect and the morale effect of strategic bombing, which were legion in the interwar years, um, still haven't fully proved their point. It's true in the case of Japan, despite the firebombing of the cities. And here's a question I always ask myself, um, and it, it comes back to uh, what, what is the other side thinking or what is the other side doing or not doing? If there is very little evidence at all of the British population's morale being broken by the blitz on the east end of London, by the destruction of Coventry, of Plymouth, of Southampton and Exeter, if in fact it just generates more determination, then why should we assume that our strategic bombing of them is going to have a different impact upon morale and, and uh, you know, determination to fight. Um, so I'm, I, I'm not convinced that uh, all of this Bomber Harris talk about breaking the enemy's will, it sounds to me dangerously like uh, General Haig on the Western Front in the First World War. You know, just one more push, just one more campaign, and we'll have broken the enemy's will. The enemy often has a lot more willpower and we think it may actually have as much willpower as we have. One more. Yeah. I think, I think, I'm so sorry. Uh, I, okay. I